BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's 108 degrees in Paris. The federal government is resuming executions. The Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee and the Republican Special Counsel agree that Russia attacked and continues to attack and corrupt American elections. The Republican head of the Senate, though, is blocking bills to stop that. Current data suggests that the current president could win re-election even with a resounding loss in the popular vote of as big as four points. How you doing, everybody? I'm Jefferson Smith. It's an honor to be with you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'm sitting in for Tom. And thank goodness and thank the Lord for you. Thank you, the coalition of the benevolently irrational, the good people doing good things for no good reason. You are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. I will respond to yesterday's calls for impeachment, and I'll tell you what I think as well. And I will talk about what I think is bigger than impeachment, more important than a vote for articles of impeachment in the United States House of Representatives, more important for the history of our country, for the trajectory of bending the arc of history towards justice. Let me start on the question of impeachment. Because we had a raft of calls yesterday. We had a raft of calls two days ago, but most of what we were doing then was listening to the testimony and offering some commentary during it. Here are, from what I can tell, five views. I'm not sure what order I want to offer those views. There might be a sixth. But no, I'm going I'm to call it, I'm going to still call it five. One I'm going to ascribe to a listener. Name is Jeff, different Jeff. Essentially, who said it's, this is the death blow. This is the big move. When I was going to say a sixth, I think that one's adjacent to this guy sucks. We got to get rid of this president. He's lousy. I'm mad at him. He has violated the Constitution. He has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. I don't like this guy. We got to get rid of him. That's the big move that has to happen. That is the Trump card on Trump. I think that's let's call it view one. View two, I think, is the Sarah Kenzier and Elizabeth Warren view, that it is a matter of principle. Also, I could bifurcate those. Those might be a little bit, and they're nuanced. Those could be a little bit different. 
the Elizabeth Warren just says is a matter of sufficient gravity. And whatever the political implications, this is the kind of thing, this is the reason the United States Senate sits. This is the reason that there are separation of powers. This is what has to happen if you have a Department of Justice policy that says a sitting president can't be indicted and a habit of the country of not indicting former presidents, that the only pathway to accountability is, in fact, articles of impeachment. And therefore, not as a matter of uh, tactics or strategy, not as a matter of you want of trying to actually remove the president, but just as a matter of principle, it must be done. Sarah Kenzie would put, a, a, I think, a slightly different uh, or maybe an additional element, which is to call the behavior out, to make it very clear if this kind of thing, if having a white supremacist president who invited Russian election interference and is financially benefiting or for purposes of financially benefiting from such interference, that that kind of thing cannot be approved of. And you can't only have people with a few microphones saying that. You need the weight of Congress saying that. You need, in fact, to stand up and say, this is not okay. And if you don't, if you don't say it's not okay, there'll be some people who say, I guess, if the opposition party didn't think it was so bad, if they, even they didn't think this is an impeachable offense, it obviously isn't an impeachable offense. And therefore, let's move on and talk about something else. There's a third view. Katie Hill is a U.S. representative who is not yet ready to vote for articles of impeachment. Her argument is essentially, I want to wait until there's the best possible case, until we have the best possible facts, because we don't want to get this guy on a technicality. We want to get him on the real stuff because we only have one chance. That's the Katie Hill view, and maybe we'll have a chance to play that. There's also the Matt Iglesias view. I don't know if it's his view. I think it's his summation of what he thinks the best argument against offering articles. And for what it's worth, I am largely with the Elizabeth Warren and Sarah Kenzie. The Matt Iglesias summary is essentially two parts. Democratic priorities are popular. The big things they want to do are popular. Impeachment is not as popular and impeachment would take all of the energy. The press cares a whole lot about impeachment. They're more fascinated by impeachment. Heck, callers who call in, plurality of them very motivated by the question of impeachment. It would draw away all of the attention from those popular things. In the midterm elections, it was focus on health care that helped win swing districts. It was the clarity that the Republican Party was trying to take away people's health care that helped win so many districts that Trump had won in 2016. That's what helped Democrats take the House in 2018. And then a focus on impeachment. This backfire, oh, well, people won't like you if you go after the president. I, that is a view. I don't think it's the strongest argument against articles of impeachment. The strongest argument against uh, bringing articles of impeachment is that it would uh, take attention away from the most popular and maybe most impactful things that the Democratic House could do. And not that they couldn't have votes on both things, but that the press would pay more attention to the impeachment vote, that the national conversation would pay more attention, that Twitter would pay more attention, so the president would pay more attention to the impeachment vote. And then a last one is wait. It's a little mix of the Katie Hill view, but it's wait so that if we already know, <coughs> excuse me, if we already know that Mitch McConnell will not uh, vote to even probably even consider the articles of impeachment, 
will not even allow for a Senate trial, certainly will not allow for a Senate trial of conviction of the president, then the timing of this for some people who are seeing it through a lens of tactics and strategy would want to move it later. So you don't have a McConnell ending of the matter right leading into the election. For my part, for my part, I stand with Elizabeth Warren and Sarah Kenzier that this question should be made as a matter of principle, not as a matter of political strategy. It should be made based on facts and application of what a sensible definition of high crimes and misdemeanors are. And beyond that, I think we have to go beyond impeachment. And I'll talk more about that after this. This is Tom Hartman's show. I'm Jeff. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Mueller Report. We're on page 135. This is about Paul Manafort and his association with Donald Trump. According to Gates, in March 2016, Paul Manafort traveled to Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida to meet with Trump. Trump hired him at that time. Manafort agreed to work on the campaign without pay. Manafort had no meaningful income at this point in time, but resuscitating his domestic political campaign career could be financially beneficial in the future. Gates reported that Manafort intended, if Trump won the presidency, to remain outside the administration and monetize his relationship with the administration. Gates further stated that Deripaska wanted a visa to the United States and that Manafort's relationship with Trump could help Deripaska in other ways as well. Gates stated, however, that Manafort never told him anything specific about what, if anything, Manafort might be offering Deripaska. Gates also reported that Manafort instructed him in April 2016 or early May 2016 to send Kalimnik campaign internal polling data and other updates so that Kalimnik, in turn, could share it with the Ukrainian oligarchs. Gates understood that the information could also be shared with Deripaska. The next sentence has been deleted by Bill Barr. Gates reported to the office that he did not know why Manafort wanted him to send polling information, but Gates thought it was a way to showcase Manafort's work, and Manafort wanted to open doors to jobs after the Trump campaign ended. Gates said that Manafort's instruction included sending internal polling data prepared for the Trump campaign by pollster Tony Fabrizio. Fabrizio had worked with Manafort for years and was brought into the campaign by Manafort. Gates stated that, in accordance with Manafort's instructions, he periodically sent Kalimnik polling data via WhatsApp. Gates then deleted the communications on a daily basis. Gates further told the office, that's the Mueller office, that after Manafort left the campaign in mid-August, Gates sent Kalimnik polling data less frequently and that the data he sent was more publicly available information and less internal data. Gates's account about polling is consistent, and then the rest of that is blacked out by Bill Barr. With multiple emails that Kalimnik sent to U.S. associates and press contacts between late July and mid-August of 2016. Those emails referenced internal polling, described the status of the Trump campaign and Manafort's role in it, and assessed Trump's prospects for victory. Manafort did not acknowledge instructing Gates to send Kalimnik internal data, and then the rest of that paragraph is blocked out by Bill Barr. The office also obtained, that's the Mueller office, also obtained contemporaneous emails that shed light on the purpose of the communications with Deripaska and that are consistent with Gates' account. For example, in response to a July 7, 2016 email from a Ukrainian reporter about Manafort's failed Deripaska-backed investment, Manafort asked Kalimnik whether there had been any movement, quote, on this issue with our friend. Gates stated that our friend likely referred to Deripaska, and Manafort told the office that the issue, and our biggest interest as stated below, was a solution to the Deripaska-Pericles issue. Kalimnik replied, quote, 
I am carefully optimistic on the question of our biggest interest. Our friend Boyarkin said there is lately significantly more attention to the campaign in his boss Deripaska's mind and that he will most likely be looking for ways to reach out to you pretty soon, understanding all the time sensitivity. I am more than sure that it will be resolved and we will get back to the original relationship with V's boss, Deripaska, end of quote. Eight minutes later, Manafort replied that Kalimnik should tell Boyarkin's boss, a reference to Deripaska, quote, that if he needs private briefings, we can accommodate, end quote. Manafort has alleged to the office that he was willing to debrief Deripaska only on public campaign matters and gave an example why Trump selected Mike Pence as the vice presidential running mate. Manafort said he never gave Deripaska a briefing. It's the Mueller report. Our weather is making us all crazy. I mean, global warming is just whacking the weather, and it's, it's a crazy hot this summer. And how do you get through that? Well, <laughs> the pod by Eight Sleep is, I mean, this is, this is really astonishing. A bed that can not only keep you warm, but it can also keep you cool through the whole night, no matter how hot it is outside. The Pod by Eight Sleep is the first and only bed with responsive surface technology designed to keep you cool all night long. The Pod is the Tesla of beds. It dynamically adjusts each side of the bed to the ideal temperature for your body, which science shows can help you and your partner sleep deeper, leading to optimal mind and body performance, just from the Pod. You'll find that Eight Sleep is a company dedicated to building the most innovative solutions for sleep's biggest problems. And with the Pod, they're delivering. You'll never have to suffer through sweaty hot nights ever again. If you're ready to beat the sweat and start optimizing your sleep, head to 8sleep.com Tom. Try the pod for 100 nights. If you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup. They already sold out the first two batches. They're going fast. For a limited time, get $150 off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com Tom. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com T-H-O-M. 8sleep.com Tom. We're back on the Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for being with us. It's an honor to be with you. Elected Democrats and vocal leaders have grappled with this moral, constitutional, tactical, and strategic conundrum. Whether or not to make a public call or join the public call for impeachment. Whether the side with the majority of Americans who find that Trump is untrustworthy or side with the majority of Americans who are not ready to begin impeachment proceedings. The case for no is strong. The case for delaying any demand for impeachment. The investigation might not be viewed as over. We now know in Seth Abramson's excellent thread offering 10 things that we learned from the Trump investigation. I'll go through those. In a little bit, reminds us that nothing on money laundering was even covered by the Mueller team. The facts aren't all gathered. Also, Pence is no savior. As a matter of principle, we shouldn't take it lightly or hastily to rush such a process. Connecting impeachment to elections can seem opportunistic. It could fit with a conservative narrative that all the libs want to do is redo the 2016 election. The case for yes is also strong. As our caller from talent and with some talent offered, there is principle at stake. The world is watching. The next generation is watching as we determine what is and what is not permissible conduct 
by a sitting president of the United States, what rises to the level of something that is not only reason to vote against, but a reason to remove. There is mounting evidence, now clear evidence from the report, of high crimes and misdemeanors, of obstruction of justice. Everything but the final conclusory line was made clear, all the predicates necessary. And the fate of the republic may, in fact, depend on changing national leadership. Lots of people, including a majority of Democrats, want Trump impeached. Impeachment demands also can build energy. And if you don't begin that process, so many of the people are saying, wait a minute, I'm a member of the the opposition party, so we can oppose, so we can resist, not so we can quietly go along. As Tom Steyer can attest, it can help you build a list if you call for impeachment. And failing to call for impeachment can also seem opportunistic or cowardly or mealy-mouthed or false. My summation is that we need to call for more than impeachment. Impeachment may be necessary, but impeachment will not uproot oligarchy or white supremacy, as I've said before. Impeachment will not restore a stolen Supreme Court or ensure a woman's right to choose. Impeachment will not restore separated families or save 1,400 lives per year from gutted climate protections. Impeachment will not transform media or conservative movement that has facilitated all of the above. Impeachment will not reform criminal justice, address wealth disparities, give the rising generation or aging Americans affordable places to live or save democracy. Impeachment will not resolve the corrupt elements within the administration, the Congress and its connected apparatus. Impeachment won't even stop Vladimir Putin and Russia from hacking our elections. The country needs more than impeachment. Impeachment may indeed be necessary. And there certainly is justification for it more than articles of impeachment that have been brought previously in history. This is a deeply serious matter from which we cannot shrink or shy. But impeachment is neither an objective nor a solution. A better country is the objective. Going after root and branch and solving real problems are solutions. A historical example. I offered it before, but it was months ago. The hardcore of the conservative movement got stronger, not weaker, after Richard Nixon fell. So much of the focus was on Nixon sucks that after he was removed, the media exhaled. Ronald Reagan seemed refreshing. The underpinnings of the modern right continued to deepen, even started growing their roots and extending their branches. The Koch brothers of the Virginia School Hat tip Nancy McLean, the Federalist Society, weren't yet famous. Removal of the president fooled America into thinking that a significant problem had been solved when, in fact, much of that problem was just beginning. Calling for more than impeachment has some added benefit of helping the advocate not merely be or sound like a mealy-mouthed appeaser or reducing the energy of the people who rightly demand change at the top. The clarion call can, and I would argue, needs to be wider and deeper, root and branch, not just personality and party, but the movement, the corrupt apparatus, along with the cruel, selfish, selfish, sexist and racist ideology. So what might that mean? If a few of you agree with me, 
I would never say that impeachment is a distraction. It's an enormously important issue. I would never uh, cheapen it that way. It's a critical question. But if I would say that it is not the only question, and if I would say so much fixation on Donald Trump, who is not the head of the snake, but the rattler, if we need to address something more than that rattle, where might we address? If I'm a listener to a radio program and I want to engage, and I'm not sure that I can have a decisive impact from either my blue or my red state, where might I have impact? Today and some next week, I'll be offering thoughts on that question. Let's take one, the state legislature. Republicans control 30 state legislatures, both the House and the Senate, compared to just 18 by Democrats. Just two states, Minnesota and Alaska right now, have split chambers. The 2010 elections resulted in severely gerrymandered or gerrymandered maps in places like North Carolina, Texas, and Wisconsin, where Republicans have hung on to outsized congressional majorities, even as their states have become more purple. Harvard professor told Vox, and I am borrowing here from Vox, Theta Skokpul, I believe is the pronunciation. State legislatures are probably just as important as the presidency. In a lot of ways, they're the whole ball game. It's kind of late in the game, still quoting, it's the fourth quarter. The Democrats are down by two touchdowns, and they have biased referees on the sidelines. They have to win the game anyway. 2020 and 2022 are the most important elections in American history, in my opinion, probably right up there with 1860. People probably remember, as I end the quote, what 1860 was and what happened right after 1860. State legislative race can get one. They're closer. They're smaller. Some donations, some knocking on doors, good candidates, framing the correct argument, increasing voter participation, not only relying on coattails, but on reverse coattails. Because tell you what, you get somebody out there to vote for the president, they might not fill out the entire ballot. Somebody shows up to fill out a ballot for the state legislature, I guarantee you they vote for this stuff above it. A national campaign or a series of national campaigns focused on state legislative races around the country could transform history, could transform congressional maps, could transform how the nation operates for the next decade, could finally start beating back what we're dealing with, which is an anti-majoritarian, anti-democratic movement. And I don't just mean anti-the Democratic Party movement that has been governing the country even without majority popular support. Arizona, Democrats are two seats away from taking a majority in the state house, three seats away from majority in the Senate. In Florida, Democrats are 14 seats away from majority in the state house. In Georgia, 16 seats in the state house. In Iowa, Democrats are less than four seats from majority in the Iowa state house. In Kansas, Democrats are trying to break Republican supermajorities in both chambers. Democrat Laura Kelly won the governor's seat in 2018. That could get done. 
Michigan Democrats broke a Republican supermajority in the state Senate, and they also passed nonpartisan gerrymandering, nonpartisan redistricting. In North Carolina, Democrats are six seats away of taking control of the state house. In Minnesota, Democrats are two seats away from majority in the state Senate. They won control of the state Senate in 2018. In Pennsylvania, Democrats broke a Republican supermajority in the state Senate in 2018. They are nine seats away from majority in the state House, four seats away from majority in the state Senate. Texas, nine seats away from a majority in the Texas state House. Virginia, two seats away from majority in the state House of Delegates, two seats away from majority in the state Senate. Wisconsin Democrats are three seats away from majority in the Wisconsin state Senate. There were two political speeches that got me engaged in politics. They were in the 1984 presidential convention. One of them was by Jesse Jackson. I don't. I think it was this speech, and he cited the Bible when David picked up a stone and smote the Philistine, and he talked about voter registration efforts all around the country as rocks just lying around. There are state legislative seats in this country, rocks just lying around. This is Tom Show. I'm Jim. Jeff from Fort Dodge. Watch this morning a lot of the mainstream uh, TV hosts, some of these news shows, and they're just awestruck why uh, Mitch McConnell will not bring up any of these votes on voter protection rules. And I firmly believe that Mr. Mitch McConnell is completely bought by the Russian government. And I firmly believe that maybe the whole Republican Party is. We know that uh, the United States Senate, with 44 Republican senators, passed a rule that gave money to Oleg Deripaska, which entitled him to receive hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars. Why did the Republican Party all of a sudden change from the Ronald Reagan Republican against the Soviets to a party that accepts the Russian philosophy? And we all know it's about power and money. Yep. And I would just dearly love to know how much money is being funneled to the Republicans, to Mitch McConnell. To the NRA. Because we know that Kentucky... The same guy that they gave the uh, sanctions relief to was going to build $200 million aluminum, uh, some kind of plant in Kentucky. And we've heard that Mitch McConnell has received millions of Russian dollars. How about the rest of our senators? I appreciate the call. And I catch your point that follow the money help understand the transformation of the Republican Party from beating Democrats by Ronald Reagan, almost beating Gerald Ford and becoming the Republican nominee based largely on his evil empire speech, based largely on his anti-Russia oratory and principles, to now having the leader of the Republican legislative apparatus uh, 
not blocking their ability to influence their elections. We can understand this on on at least three levels. One level is their public level. No, no, we want to do more than just that. Let's make sure if we're going to do that, that we suppress the votes of young people and people of color in the United States. Let's make sure we don't just become pro-democracy. We do something that is still pro-Republican Party. A second understanding, which I think has to be at least the case as well, why would we be so motivated to stop a foreign power that worst case scenario, worst case scenario, helps us win? They sort of figure there's two options here. Either it doesn't happen, it doesn't matter, or Russians try, it doesn't have much impact, or it did happen, it's going to happen again, it did have real impact, and the impact it had was, I don't know, helping Republicans win seats, help Republicans win the presidency, help Republicans uh, stack and pack the Supreme Court of the United States. Why would they stop that? You raise the third one. It is potentially the most pernicious, where the corruption is more direct, where it's not merely the soft corruption of oligarchy in the country, but in fact, direct and some indirect payments to people and payments to political movements. We've seen it with the National Rifle Association. We just found out that there was capability in Illinois to tamper with voting results. It's scary stuff. We'll be back. George on KPFK, wonderful station in Los Angeles, California. How are you doing, George? I want to suggest that we do not allow Republicans to describe themselves as conservatives. In truth, they are reactionaries. They are reacting with loathing and fear to the onrushing future. The future is coming, and what they do is they respond with lies and bombast. That's all. I appreciate it, George. You raised something really important, that the Republican Party has been hacked. The party of Lincoln has been infiltrated. It has been transformed. It is no longer the same thing. It would not be recognized by the people who are organizing in presidential conventions that made Abraham Lincoln president. They would not understand how it was possibly related historically, philosophically, ideologically, politically, or otherwise. Even to call it the Republican Party, to say that it is there for the preservation of a republic— begs questions and offers too much credit. I agree that they are not there to conserve the environment, even though the environmental movement was rooted in Teddy Roosevelt. They are not there to conserve the sanctity of American elections. You need sight only to what is happening now with Mitch McConnell's refusal to protect the American electorate and protect America's democracy. What word we should use or what set of words we should use is a good question. You say reactionary would take other options as well if people have thoughts while still figuring out how to be accurate. And when it is um, when it is appropriate, when it is called for to be respectful, I I think that this language challenge is a real one. Uh, Bill, go ahead from Amherst. It occurred to me in the middle of all this that. What we're looking at in some ways could be analogous to a labor union and a strike. Mm -hmm. You don't strike until you have everybody on board to strike. And a strike, just like an impeachment, is a leap of faith. It's a strong power statement. It doesn't change how big the parking lot is or whether you get vacation time or whether the workers get mistreated in any specific way. It tries to bring the administration, the bosses, to the table to negotiate meaningfully. When Nancy Pelosi is constantly trying to figure out 
how to measure the power dynamic. That's what's on her mind, and I respect that. It makes me crazy, just like when I was a labor organizer, because my default setting was always, we should strike now. But that takes courage, and it takes solidarity. And I really hope we can make it to that point, because all the other things considered about how it doesn't change a whole lot of things that need to be changed, it doesn't make it less imperative that we do it now. So that's my perspective. Bill, so appreciated. I think your analogy, it hadn't occurred to me sufficiently of the analogy between a labor strike and this. And what I heard you say was, before you strike, you make sure you have everybody on board. And there's another side to that. And you said, well, and I was always the one who wanted to strike now. Well, there's got to be somebody calling for it. I want to make clear, when I try to engage the multiple sides of this impeachment elephant, right, it's, it's trunk and its tusks and its legs and its tail, and not only look at one piece of the beast, that is not, for my part, to quell people raising this or even calling for the case of impeachment. Because if nobody's calling for it, it won't move that needle up from 40% who are supporting beginning the process. It won't persuade more members of the country or members of Congress to do it. I find it also really interesting because it ought to tell us if we want to be a party of the people or if we're not all the members of one political party, we want to be a movement based in the people. Then we also need to recognize our responsibility in that, that We can't just rely on members of Congress to lead that conversation, that in so many ways and to such a degree, elected politicians are not leaders, they're followers, and they follow the power apparatus in the country. We have to transform that power apparatus. That power apparatus includes elected officials. It is not merely that. So all the people who are texting and saying impeachment now are calling in saying impeachment now. If you're not saying that, who will? To be very clear, when I try to engage the issue, it is not to uh, set aside the folks who say, strike now, strike now, strike now, because if nobody's saying strike now, there won't be enough workers to strike ever. Jeff from Los Angeles, California on Free Speech TV, thanks so much for calling. Uh, thank you, Jefferson. You've always been uh, a really good uh, host. Appreciate it. Uh, I just want to, you know, back up a little bit and go up a little higher and look down. Uh, This morning I was reading an online article, the title, Hong Kong and Puerto Rico, Two Colonies Doomed to Second-Class Status, the Central Government Control, and these peoples don't have any uh, way of uh, expressing that unless they get out in the streets. And uh, I thought that was relevant to everything, especially, you know, Mueller report and millions of people watching that in our yeah. our system. I thought it was relevant that they're both similar. And the reason we're interested in it, because it has a lot to do with democracy yeah. and uh, against uh, power and money, abuse of power and money. That's really helpful. I hadn't sufficiently made the connection between Hong Kong and Puerto Rico, both places as sort of. Uh, subordinate class status within the national apparatus that governs them. Puerto Rico without statehood, uh, President Donald Trump not almost acting as if they're not in the country when they uh, were dealing with their climate crisis. And in Hong Kong, Hong Kong passed over from, turned over from colonial Great Britain to the Republic of China. That is an interesting parallel. I'll offer another one also looking sort of deeper. As I see the flow of history, the post-World War II era has been kind of a transition from the colonial era, from the, from the era where uh, it was kind of the global consensus that might made right. 
that you could, that the most powerful nation in a region could go out and conquer the other nations and take them and take their stuff. And after that reached its either nadir or apotheosis, either its highest or lowest point, uh, arguably with uh, maybe with uh, Stalin's pogroms, but more aptly probably with uh, Hitler in the run up to World War II, that notion was, shall we say, set aside. The, the United Nations was no longer saying, yeah, you, you, we're not down with you just going and conquering who's next to you. Not to say that there isn't still colonialism in the world, but it became more of a bankrupt idea in the international conversation. During also that post-World War II era was the era of that world order, the, uh, the post-World War II Western Alliance. With the passing of World War II veterans and with the uh, elimination of the Soviet Union and with the rise of global oligarchy and global kleptocracy. I think we are in the transition throes to a new era. It's up to people like listeners of this this show to figure out what that era is going to be like. Hey, thanks so much for listening to our podcast. If you're staying up into the wee hours of the night to listen to the podcast, because we've got such cool stuff here, you might wake up in the morning with a little under eye puffiness. <laughs> you know, what, what can I say? What works to fix that is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, wrinkles, or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See it for yourself. Watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get my discount. That's TriPlexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call one 800 685-1292 and mention Tom. I don't see them. Are you asking me to push a button? Welcome back, everybody. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is Tom Harbin Show. On the air right now, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan, former speaker, no, Paul Ryan, vice president, policy and litigation with Common Cause. Of the many things that have the risk of being lost by us focusing on the theater of yesterday's hearing, is one piece of that hearing, one piece of that testimony, with which regarded the attack the interference on American elections. And it would be really nice if this were not viewed primarily or merely through a lens of political power. It'd be really nice if this weren't seen through a lens of who would benefit and who would lose if, in fact, we protected the sanctity of our elections. There is White House stonewalling. There has been uh, requests for election security bills to talk about that is with us right now, Paul Ryan, Paul S. Ryan, Vice President of Common Cause. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so what are some, uh, what were important takeaways? What are things that you think were missed or you want to make sure aren't missed by what much of America watched? 
Well, one of the things that not a single member of the House bothered to ask Special Counsel Mueller yesterday was were questions about the legal standard he applied when he was trying to determine whether or not the Trump campaign, Donald Trump himself, illegally coordinated political activity with Russians. Um, Robert Mueller applied the wrong legal standard. He applied a standard that he, he said that there is no statutory definition of collusion, so he looked to conspiracy law. And then he went on to say that um, there is no statutory definition of coordination. So he made up a definition of coordination that required an agreement. And that's in direct conflict with longstanding federal campaign finance law. I have no idea why he did that. And I was hoping we'd mm. hear some questions about that yesterday. No one mentioned it. No member of Congress mentioned it. Do you have speculation? That's such a... <laughs> That is such an incredibly important point that I was not dazzled by the the legal work by uh, by the Mueller report in in somebody in, in their desire to actually get at what was going on. Uh, if you were going to make a guess as to motive, why do you think was there was there a particular piece of precedent that would suggest going the route that he went? Why do you think that why do you think that he applied the standard that he applied? I, I really have no hypothesis. I have yeah. no good guess. I mean, one of the, the way he phrased this section of the report, and this is at the very beginning of volume one of his report, the introduction where he talks about how collusion is not a legal term. Um, so he's looking at conspiracy and coordination. And it is, in fact, true that there is no federal criminal statute. There's no provision in the criminal code that deals with this term coordination or defines it. But again, there is a term in the federal campaign finance law, the Federal Election Campaign Act, which can be enforced with criminal penalties that defines all this. So I have no idea why he limited the scope of his investigation. I mean, and the, what all this means at the end of the day is if you read through volume one of the report, everywhere you see Robert Mueller and his team wrote, we didn't find any evidence or strong evidence of illegal coordination between the Trump team and Russians. What he really meant was we didn't find any strong evidence of an agreement between so Donald important and so important what should this standard have been and i know for folks this might seem a little weedsy this might seem a little detailed but we got some smart listeners but our folks care about stuff and pay attention and getting this level of detail i think is really important so the uh so what you're saying the standard to define coordination you're allowed to coordinate uh between certain uh between foreign governments and domestic uh domestic campaigns for purposes of winning an election. And you're saying the standard they use was whether or not there was agreement, whether or not uh, Donald Trump sat in a room with Vladimir Putin's buddy and said, hey, I want to help elect you president. And Donald Trump said, yes, I would like you to help me. Uh, I'd like you to help me be elected president. And if you do that, I will give you the following things. I'll put those in the Republican Party platform and they shake on it. And there's a videotape of it. And you show the videotape and said, I gotcha. What should the standard have been? So there's a couple important building blocks or foundational principles in campaign finance law. Number one is that if someone other than a candidate or a candidate campaign staff makes an expenditure, as that term's defined in federal law, it's defined to mean money spent for the purpose of influencing a federal election. If they make such an expenditure in coordination with a candidate, it's treated as a contribution to the candidate. Foundational principle number two is that 
foreign nationals are prohibited from making contributions to federal candidates in U.S. elections. And number three, the statute, the Federal Election Campaign Act, defines this term coordination as any any expenditure made in cooperation, consultation with, or at the request or suggestion of a candidate. That's number four. There's no mention in the federal coordination statute of an agreement, requirement for agreement. Say those three words again. Three words. You said cooperation. What were the other? Consultation. In cooperation, consultation with, or at the request or suggestion of a candidate. At the request or suggestion of. Okay, go ahead. And then in 2002, as a provision in the um, federal McCain-Feingold law, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002, Congress included a provision, it's uh, Section 214, ordered the Federal Election Commission to strengthen the FEC's coordination rules and explicitly prohibited the FEC from requiring an agreement as part of the coordination test under the FEC's regulation. The one other thing I want to mention is that when the Federal Election Commission did strengthen its coordination rules in response to Congress saying, hey, FEC, you got to strengthen your rules, do not require an agreement, a couple of the criteria that the FEC put into the rules that would determine or establish when coordination existed was that if the campaign itself had any material involvement in the spenders, in this case Russia's, decisions about the intended audience for the communication or the timing of the communication. So um, at a minimum, we know that Paul Manafort, as well as Rick Gates, at the direction of Paul Manafort, provided a bunch of internal Trump campaign polling data to some intermediaries, Ukrainian, Russian, that eventually, we presume, made its way to the Russians themselves who are responsible for this interference, election interference. Um, If the Russians relied on that information, figure out who they were going to target, what states they were going to run their social media campaigns in, what segments of the populations or social media users, Facebook users, for example, should be seeing those ads, then it's quite possible there was illegal coordination. But we don't know, because Robert Mueller didn't look for that type of evidence. Once he concluded, presumably, that there was no agreement, that Paul Manafort did not agree to anything by the Rus- or with the Russians on behalf of the Trump campaign, he seemingly stopped looking. So I want to use an analogy that may or may not be apt, but I think about like antitrust law, I think about like price fixing. Okay, so if I'm Delta Airlines and I call up the head of American Airlines and I say, okay, if you set your, uh, if you raise the, uh, the price of your ticket to $1,200, we will also raise the price of our ticket to $1,200 and we won't try to undercut you by charging $1,100. But we know that's a violation for price fixing. What if I'm the head of Delta Airlines and I just send over to American Airlines the, uh, uh, the prices that I am going to set and I do that in advance of setting them? All right, and then I watch to see what they do back. Is that is that uh, unlawful coordination? I know that the antitrust law and price fixing is different, but I uh, but I still I want to look at other contexts in addition to election context. I think your analogy is a good one. I'm an expert on election law. I've been doing election law for 20 years. I'm not an expert on airlines price fixing antitrust law, but it sounds like a reasonable analogy to me. So and so what you're saying is there didn't need to be the return response, say, oh, hey, thanks for this. There didn't have to first be a request necessarily. Hey, would you please provide to us that election information? But that kind of request, had it happened, or more importantly for your point, had Mueller investigated to see if it had happened, that even if they hadn't added, hey, please give us information, if you do, we will help you win the election. 
And if you do, and we help you win the election, we will get some consideration for that, some payback for that. That even if there was just the request or just that information and they used it, that that could have been enough to show a violation of campaign finance law. I think your point is extraordinarily important. Is that matter now foreclosed because Mueller's testimony is done? Is there any, and, and, and of course, Attorney General Barr doesn't want to take down this president. He is there to serve as a blocker for him. Is there anything that can be done with respect to that coordination that unlawful, uh, your, your, your argument of that unlawful coordination. There's two avenues forward for holding this president accountable for illegal activity in 2016, as well as other illegal activities. And um, one is an impeachment investigation, perhaps concluding in articles of impeachment. And Common Cause just last night announced that we are calling on Congress to open a formal impeachment investigation into Donald Trump, an inquiry of impeachment. And Congress could do something about this. If Congress looks at this law, concludes that Robert Mueller applied the wrong legal standard, and through its own investigation determines that the Trump campaign violated these campaign finance laws, that would presumably be an impeachable offense. There's a bunch of other grounds for impeachment, or at least an impeachment investigation that we uh, put forth in a report that we published last night that's available on our website at www.commoncause.org. Um, but the other avenue, in addition to a congressional impeachment inquiry is the Federal Election Commission. The Federal Election Commission has enforcement authority here. I have filed complaints with the FEC on a number of these matters over the past uh, year and a half to two years. And the FEC has a job now to take up its civil enforcement investigations and, and punishing these wrongdoing now that the Department of Justice has seemingly concluded its investigation. One other thing I want to, and so I heard you, so Congress could do something and impeachment proceedings could do something. Uh, one other quick matter before we have to uh, before we have to move on, and thank you so much for spending time with us, Paul Ryan again from Common Cause. Uh, and this is the election, the matter of the election security bills. That's something that isn't just about Trump, but that is about the sanctity of our elections and the interference in those elections. And that in fact there were bills to address that. And what's happened to those bills? What McConnell's blocking them. McConnell's blocking them. He's getting some other senators to block them, other Republican senators. Uh, some of this legislation is even bipartisan. There was a bill blocked yesterday that was introduced by Democrat Senator Wyden of Oregon, as well as Cotton, Senator Cotton, a Republican from Arkansas. And it um, that was blocked by McConnell. There are a couple other bills that would have required mandatory reporting if a U.S. campaign got contacted by a foreign national who wanted to help that campaign the, under these two, two other bills that were blocked yesterday uh, would have required that campaign to tell the Federal Election Commission and the FBI that a foreign national or foreign country was trying to interfere in our elections. All being blocked by McConnell, it's outrageous, to put it bluntly. I mean, Special Counsel Mueller made clear yesterday, not only did Russian interference happen in 2016, but Foreign interference campaigns are underway now to influence and hijack our 2020 election. This is a problem all Americans, regardless of party, should care about, and Congress has to act. What's the What's the argument? Now, I understand the motive, all right, or at least I can understand at least one or two motives. The most conspiratorial of those could be, well, they're they're sort of in on the fix. The other could just be, well, they're blocking it because they see that, you know, pro-Trump 
interference in the election helps Republicans. And so why would Republicans stop that? But they're probably not going to say that as their argument. If they, for an analogy I'll use is various voter suppression stuff. They don't come out and say, well, the reason we want to block voter suppression is because we think that young people, people of color and renters aren't going to support oligarchs and Republicans. What they say is, I don't know, they have a different argument about why it's important because, oh, because there's voter fraud or some other thing. What's the argument for not passing uh, for not at least even allowing a vote on uh, on election protection, uh, on election sanctity legislation. Well, you might have perhaps it was inadvertent, but you just hit the nail on the head. The, the argument that they are making now for blocking these election security measures is that these bills are targeting foreign election interference and they don't have the voter suppression uh, provisions that Republicans want to pass. So these mm-hmm. voter suppression Uh, bills, the voter ID and other voter suppression tactics, they get dressed up by Republicans as election security tactics. They are solutions to problems that don't exist. Voter ID, for example, it is a it's a policy that makes it harder to vote and doesn't solve any actual existent fraud problem. They're arguments this week, McConnell's argument, Senator McConnell's argument is, hey, these bills are partisan because they don't include the election, so-called election security provisions we Republicans want, even though those election security, so-called election security provisions are really voter suppression tactics. Well, Paul Ryan, would love to talk to you again. Really appreciate your time. Uh, Where can people find out more? Probably at commoncause.org. You got it. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Appreciate your work. You're priceless. Thank you. The uh, for folks who nerd out on this stuff, and and I have said before, and I will say again, to me, the fight here is democracy. That is what is at stake. I say that not to be an alarmist. I say that as a strategist. I say that as a armchair moral philosopher. That that is the the first principle, the raison d'etre. That is the thing that I hope will bind us, motivate us, and push us forward. I'll give one little plug for people who care about that new podcast, Democracy Nerd. You can get it at xraypod.com. Just has a couple episodes just starting out, but that's xraypod.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit tomhartman.com for audio and video archives. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Do you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the Fred chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Seth Abramson offered an excellent thread on what we learned from the Mueller testimony. So much attention, a ridiculous degree of attention, was spent by Chuck Todd and the nattering nabobs 
about his performance. You know how little I care about his performance? He's not running for anything. None of us had a chance to vote for him the first time. We're not going to vote for him anything now. The guy is not looking for future public positions. He's not trying to get a TV show. He's not trying to be a Fox News pundit. He's not trying to work for Chuck Todd. He's just a guy who had a job to do. He did his job. I have some praise for that job. I have some quibbles for that job. But his performance, I understand why they focused on it. But it's not something I want to care about. What I think we should care about is what we learned, is what it reminded us of, or what new came out of it. And so much, one of the, one of the worst takes, one of the worst takes was, if you heard anybody say this, they weren't paying sufficient attention. And a big reason why we do this program is so we can pay a little bit better attention. Seth Abramson was paying good attention. One of the worst takes was, oh, did we learn anything? Didn't really learn anything. Luckily, I didn't hear that too much because people were too busy talking about whether or not Robert Mueller looked like a 74-year-old man or something older than that. Here are 10 things from Seth Abramson. One, a vast Trump-Russia counterintelligence probe is ongoing. Exponentially broader than the Mueller probe. It covers collusion and its findings are being kept from America and from Congress. The fight to see that began yesterday. Well, now two days ago. Second, federal law enforcement cannot confirm Trump isn't compromised by Russia. Compromise is a counterintelligence issue, and compromised politicians are national security threats. And no one has seen any FBI counterintelligence report. We don't know if Trump is a threat. That's number two. Number three, Mueller didn't investigate anything Trump was accused of besides obstruction. The non-obstruction allegations against Trump were aiding and abetting, bribery, money laundering, illegal pre-election receipt of in-kind donations from non-Russians, and Mueller looked at none of that. And by the way, you've heard me before talk about this, I think all this stuff started with money laundering. The guy wanted to be, wanted to not only be rich because of his daddy, but also wanted to make sure he kept and expanded his dough, realized people wouldn't lend to him, so he started getting money from mobsters, started building casino in New Jersey. And then when that when he realized there was a richer kind of mobster and they were in Eastern Europe, well, he started getting money from that kind of mobster. It's not that complicated. Five, there is substantial evidence Trump committed the federal felony of making false statements to law enforcement. Mueller testified under oath that Trump's written answers to the FBI and the special counsel were, quote, generally untruthful, as the facts in Mueller's report confirm. Number six, Trump and GOP claims, excuse me, of no collusion, no obstruction and no evidence of conspiracy or coordination are all false. It isn't news to anyone paying attention, but as much of America isn't, many learn for the first time that from Mueller that these GOP talking points are lies. Number seven, more than halfway done. Mueller said Trump could have been charged with obstruction post-presidency and would have been charged if not for the OLC opinion. Eight. Any, uh, by the way, and Mueller's later somewhat confusing walk back of the second claim, which many had taken as an accidental truth, didn't erase the specter that he meant what was said. Eight, any Trump crimes involving other nations are still unreported. Mueller's testimony made clear that evidence involving nations besides Russia went to FBI counterintelligence. Nine, Republicans have no objections to any of the damning facts in the Mueller report. Mueller waited with bated breath for Republicans to contest the report's damning findings. The media waited with bated breath. I waited for bated breath to see if Republicans would contest those findings rather than just opine on other stuff. And shockingly, that moment never came. And number 10, 
Mueller only chose not to interview Trump face-to-face because he did judge that he had enough evidence of corrupt intent on obstruction. Mueller resolved a long-standing mystery. Why didn't he insist on keeping Trump to his public promise of live interview? Well, now we know. Those are all things that we learned. We learned a lot. Let's try to pay attention to what we learned and not just whether or not it made a good TV show. Robin from Hansville. I think it's Hansville, Washington. How you doing? Yeah, it's uh, Kingston, Washington, and it's not. My call is not suitable for speed round, but I would like to tie in the uh, behavior now of a certain amount of laziness that was inculcated and developed from the '60s protests. Back in the '60s and the '70s, we had big event only mindsets, big marches, and then voting every four years, and then you would go home, and it inculcated in people's into the citizens psyche and habits for political engagement that it's very cyclical and it only has to take place every now and then and so i see a direct relationship between those people who are calling for impeachment versus all of the things that you have so beautifully elicited and stated what impeachment does not do. I think that the left, the gray-haired left, I'm 71, I qualify, are kind of lazy. They want somebody else. Okay, well, just impeachment and all our problems are solved. And that is not the way it is. Uh, I've written civil informationing, and it redefines people's uh, engagement in their politics. In Jefferson, it has to take every day, for sure, and without any doubt, every week. So I'm calling out I am calling out my 50, 60, 70, 80, 90-year-old people, and I am saying you cannot depend upon impeachment. Somebody else to do your work for citizenship. You need to stand up. You need to do something. You need to get involved. Tomorrow is a new day. Impeachment's not going to solve our problems. Thank you, Jefferson. You rock, brother. Robin, so appreciate the take. The big event only activism. I wrote it down. That's a takeaway for me. Success. I'm taking this from a business writer. Success is not an event. It is a process. We got to be at it all the time. Thank you to Robin. We're blessed with smart listeners. And one of the things I really appreciate was Robin's call and Robin's comment that we need to be neither distracted nor reliant upon what he called big event only activism on thinking that if we have the, just the one right march, just the one right protest, that everything will work out. There's got to be a process. We've got to work on it every day. That's why we get together. It took, if you read Nancy McLean's book, 40, 50 years to take over the courts after Brown versus Board of Education. 40 or 50 years. That doesn't happen one march. It happens march after march after march. It's an onward march. And each of you are part of it. And we appreciate you. You're the coalition of the benevolently irrational, the good people doing good things for no good reason. And you are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.